Thanks for joining me for a special edition of the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I explore books, writing, and literary culture, broadcasting Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Great Conversations is a way to enlarge that discussion. Every week I share stories and issues that make our world tick, and in talking to the writers I try to get behind the scenes and understand what's going on in their work. Now, last week I brought you Baruz Bashani's No Friend But The Mountains, and it took you into Australia's offshore detention facilities. Baruz has been imprisoned on Manus Island for five years, and in No Friend But The Mountains he explores his life and experiences on Manus, detailing the oppression and systemic torture of life imprisoned without recourse or release. Now, as part of my preparation for my conversation with Beruz, I spoke with Dr. Omid Tafidjian. Omid is an academic at the University of Sydney and the University of Cairo. He worked as a friend, collaborator, and translator for Beruz on No Friend But The Mountains, and he was able to provide valuable insights into Beru's experience and his philosophy that he presents through No Friend But The Mountains. So here's my conversation with Dr. Omid Tafidjian. <laughs> Behrouz, for me, one of the most impressive things about him is his uh, understanding of his of the natural and built environments. My name is Omid Tafigian, and at the moment I'm Assistant Professor in Philosophy at uh, American University in Cairo, and I also have an Honorary Research Associate position at the University of Sydney. He's extremely intelligent, uh, he's extremely visionary, but he has this deep connection with uh, not only uh, people and 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 an understanding of psychology, uh, but he also has this uh, uh, really sophisticated uh, realization of how built environments and uh, natural environments uh, work and how they affect uh, human beings. And I think this relates to one of the points that I really want to make about Behrouz's personality is that he's an indigenous Kurdish man. He's a, he's, he's an indigenous person from the Kurdistan region that spans Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. And he's, he's obviously from the uh, Iranian part of Kurdistan, uh, or the, the part of Kurdistan that's occupied by Iran. And he grew up in the mountains. He grew up in a uh, village in Kurdistan in the mountains, and he grew up with um, interacting with nature. And his, his um, experience of uh, folklore and storytelling and uh, mythology, for instance, uh, the, these, his experience with these traditions actually relates to the landscape that he grew up around. Uh, so it's it really it's natural that when he moves from that location to another place, so for instance when he moved to Tehran, or when he was in Indonesia, when he was um, uh, even on the boat uh, coming to Australia, and of course in Manus Island and Christmas Island before that, uh, he he translates or he's able to draw on that uh, experience of uh, his environment um, that's rooted in his uh, indigenous experience um, with the land. Uh, he's able to draw on that to um, understand and analyse what's happening around him and why. How did you come to work and collaborate with Beruz Bashani? I've been working with refugees, uh, asylum seekers, migrants uh, for quite a number of years, since basically since the Howard era uh, around the, the 2000, uh, the year 2000. And uh, I was involved in different kinds of um, advocacy, uh, particularly uh, arts and cultural projects, but also uh, connecting uh, people uh, with, for instance, lawyers, with media, uh, with uh, social, cultural networks. 
I left Australia for a number of years and uh, continued that kind of work uh, in different countries, in uh, the United Arab Emirates, in Belgium and in the Netherlands. And I learned a lot uh, when I was over there. I saw the way that advocacy plays out in different spaces and uh, and also uh, had a, a different view of w- what sort of things or what sort of direction uh, could um, be taken here in Australia. So when I came back, I continued that, and it was uh, I came back to Australia maybe uh, at the end of 2010. Uh, yeah, it was at the end of 2010, and then I contacted. Uh, I continued that kind of work, and uh, it was about February 2016 that I noticed an article online uh, that someone had posted up on Facebook, um, written by Beckers. And I was so impressed by it, and it reminded me of so much of the work that was being done in, in different spaces uh, that I'd experienced overseas. So I sent Behrouz a, a Facebook message uh, congratulating him and telling him that I admire his work. And the relationship began there. We um, uh, slowly um, started a conversation, and at one point he asked me if I'd uh, be able to help him with translation. And because I'm not trained as a translator, I told him that uh, I'll do my best and uh, you know, I've, I've had very little experience in translation before then, and uh, it, and it worked out really well. It turned out the the first article turned out well, and uh, he got some good feedback for it. Uh, and then he um, then I continued translating for him. But um, then the opportunity to translate his book came up, and I was a little bit hesitant because literature is very different from journalism. And uh, but yeah, I, I thought it was a it was too good to refuse. It was something that I really had to be involved in. I thought it was, I knew it was going to be the most imp- one of the most important things that would be published in a long time. Mm, I tend to agree. Um, yeah, throughout No Friend But The Mountains, there's this extraordinary evocation of of the land, but also Beru's and the other, and I think we'll say characters that he creates, because each individual, uh, with the exception of uh, Reza and Hamid, are, are uh, agglomerations of of character traits in No Friend But The Mountains, right. but he, he really he really has this sense of evoking. And I, I wondered about your understanding of the way he uses language, because in, in one of the conversations you relate in your introduction, Beruz notes the difference between the language of his journalism and that of No Friend But The Mountains. You, you mentioned that your first introduction to him was through his journalism. Can you tell me a little bit about what emerged for you as you were sent pages of the manuscript to translate, reading his, his language? Yeah, I think evocation is a really important um, indicator. It's a really important um, uh, uh, aspect of uh, of his work, and it's actually something that really needs to be appreciated in order to um, analyze and interpret what he's written. He, with with journalism and also with his film, uh, I also did the subtitles for Choka. Please tell us the time. Uh, with both of those, Beckles tries very hard to explain to the. Um, Australian audiences and international audiences, what it is actually going on, how what it means to live in that kind of those kinds of conditions, what it means to be degraded, um, uh, to experience degradation, uh, to experience dehumanisation, uh, to be humiliated constantly, to be uh, kept in limbo for that amount of time in, in, indefinitely. Um, so he. He 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 realised not long after he started writing journalism, and um, especially after the film, he realised that uh, 
he's unable through these media media he's unable to um, convey what it, what systematic torture really means mm-hmm. and he realized that he, what he really needs to um, express that through literature for people not it's impossible for, for people to understand what he's gone through and what other prisoners have gone through but uh, he he realizes that the only way he can really um, shock people and, and really convey some sense of the um, uh, the reality the lived reality and the endurance of the prison experience on manners is through literature um, and that is because he evokes so much through his writing you observe in your introduction that your first trip to to manners you 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 saw that only torture is allowed to proceed according to schedule can you can you tell me about the curiacal system that Baruz elaborates on in the book and how you understand its operation on manners uh, absolutely uh, the Choriacal system is extremely important, uh, especially for understanding the way systematic torture um, works, how it operates, and how it's uh, uh, deeply rooted in the whole and the architecture, in the design of the uh, of the space, and also how it relates to so much related to Australian politics, society, and culture, and of course uh, its colonial history. When I went to um, Manus Island and I met with Beth Ruz, um, uh, as I mentioned in my translator's note, it's, it was the, the very day, the day I arrived was the very day that um, Hamed Shamshiripur, uh, his body was found. And, and I realized from talking to people there and from um, uh, really just getting a feel for, for what's happening, how people are living, how they're trying to, to cope with the... Um, Basically, the purgatory that they've been placed in, and the um, and the unbearable pressure to, to understand what that what that's like to, to really get a, um, a grip on what's what's happening, what sort of um, punishment is being inflicted. You need to understand that not just the, the structure, because there's no superstructure that's uh, mm. that's governing the prison and Australia's border regime. It's actually multiple. Uh, forms of uh, oppression that are interlocking, and this is where the hierarchical system uh, comes into play. It's uh, and, and this is why it's so hard to really pin down and analyze and to explain. Um, it's because it's 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 so unpredictable, but at the same time so well planned. There's uh, issues around gender, sexuality, race, faith-based discrimination, class, um, militarism, colonialism. All of these things are operating together to um, to keep the refugees in this uh, particular state, and also at the same time to exploit uh, the natural resources of Manus Island and the labour of the Indigenous peoples there. Through reading No Friend But The Mountains, I couldn't help but reflect on my own life and the way systems operate or I'm subject to systems. Did did working and collaborating with Berus change the way you think or influence the way you think about your own world? Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I reflect on my own experience um, going back. I mean, uh, to my um, um, migration to Australia, um, my, my family's um, departure from Iran, uh, which also involved exile. Um, that was that was another generation, another another era. Um, and in thinking about the connection that I have with Behrouz and, you know, this experience of being marginalised, not just in um, the context of Australia, but also in the context of our own community, um, the Iranian community. This this gave me an enormous um, 
uh, enormous insight into how things operate, why things occur. And, and in fact, thinking about the way that uh, working with Beverus uh, and trying to promote his work also... Um, uh, also um, led me to encounter experiences of marginalization within organizations and groups and through, with individuals who actually are refugee supporters. So it's not just the people who are anti-refugee who, um, who marginalize and, um, and, uh, and discriminate against um, or stigmatize refugees. It happens in, in implicit ways within other communities as well, within other groups, uh, and, and often in those spaces where um, refugee advocacy is actually uh, seen as being a virtue. So I guess uh, one of the things um, that, that I learned um, with, through working with Behrouz is that um, the, the hierarchical system actually influences all of us. It's, it's, mm. it's beyond borders, it's beyond cultures, it's even beyond uh, political affiliation. It's, uh, it's something that takes a hold and, and really um, creates machines out of people. It creates situations where regardless of what you do, um, you're, you're benefiting a system of oppression and um, uh, domination and subjugation rather than uh, trying to promote humanity. I was struck um, in many passages, but uh, thinking of one in particular where Beru's had, had scaled and was lying on the roof and sort of thinking out and, and reflecting on freedom, how the situation of imprisonment causes this this reflection on ideas of freedom and the complete opposite is true for people that that feel free I, I very rarely think on my own freedom um do you think that in some way people that consider themselves free the people that are implicitly or explicitly part of the system that is imprisoning someone like Beru's, their their ignorance or their unwillingness to engage with these things in their own world is somehow propping the system up yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, uh, and I think that the chapter that you refer to is is particularly important for me. Uh, I, I I tell Behrouz often that that chapter I feel was like a gift to me. Uh, it, it's it's a chapter that was written for me because it uh, so much about that chapter, um, which is titled "Chanting of Crickets, Ceremonies of Cruelty, A Mythic Topography of Manus Prison." Uh, my, my own training is in philosophy and religious studies, uh, cultural studies, and uh, also literary theory or aesthetics. So the, that 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 particular chapter brings in or allows me to bring in all of my uh, interests, research interests, and my training. And and I think that this this issue of um, what it means to be free and the kind of borders that that restrict um, our agency really come to play there. And in, in that particular chapter, and, and I think in terms of knowledge, knowledge production, and you know who has um, access to particular kinds of knowledge, really um, a, a cause for reflection in respect to that chapter, the whole book, but particularly that chapter. I think it shows that there is something that people who are in those particular situations, who there's something particular to their situation that allows for a particular kind of knowledge. They can see things that we can't. Um, you know, we're so caught up in uh, in these restrictive uh, uh, binaries and, and these kinds of uh, norms that govern so much of our lives and our understanding of history and our understanding of other people who we're not familiar with. Uh, by being imprisoned in Manus, Manus Prison or the, the detention centre there and being in that sort of enclosed space, um, 
having no choice but to basically look up at the stars, uh, reflect on your own past, uh, think about the things that uh, influence you from your childhood. Behu's come to a particular position where very few of us actually come to. He's able to see freedom in a in a certain way that most people can't. So he has access to a special kind of knowledge. Um, I can say a lot more about this, but I think what's the, the crux of it for me is that there's um, a, a certain kind of status or a certain kind of um, situation in terms of, of knowing that uh, Behrouz embodies, and that's something that we as Australians or anyone in the world who um, who has the privilege of living in a, a liberal democracy and uh, has access to so many resources and opportunities can, can learn from, uh, it will allow us to think about our own freedoms uh, and also uh, and how those freedoms are actually dependent on certain kinds of binaries that um, marginalise and exclude other people. Can we though? Are we uh, are we are we not maybe drowning in knowledge and feeling that we have access is a form of its own. We move we move away from trying to understand because we feel like we always have the opportunity. We're never forced to confront what it may, might mean to actually engage with knowledge. We know that it's always there. I don't I don't know that we we actually well for many people that we actually engage. Yeah, I mean, ironically, there's so much information out there, uh, but I think um, understanding is something that's uh, lacking, uh, and increasingly so. Um, maybe I can I can say that there's there's uh, a situation now where main, uh, maintaining your status in society, um, you know, avoiding any kind of repercussions in terms of your your perspective or in terms of your um, um, advocacy in relation to uh, issues around injustice. Um, those sort of things um, have priority for, for so many people. And uh, to actually challenge the system, stand up to, uh, to injustices and expose things when, that when, when uh, you encounter them, when you experience them, or when you see other people experiencing them, uh, that sort of thing is becoming more and more marginalized. Everyone is in, in fear of... Um, you know, losing their livelihoods, and I can understand that. But um, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of, uh, what is it that we're losing in terms of our humanity? Mm, and we see the, the the wheels turn, the system operates. Thank you, there, <laughs> Omid. Sorry, I actually I went a bit off my script and um, indulged just some thoughts that were occurring as you were speaking. Um, I might I might come back to something that I I, I did want to ask you though. Um, sure. Because the work, no friend, but the mountains. This work is it's this enormous literary accomplishment by Beirut on so many levels. And I was hoping you could help me understand that, to, or, or an uninitiated listener understand the way Beru's weaves poetry and philosophy and Kurdish literary traditions into the creation of this work. Uh, absolutely. I think that for me that was uh, really amazing as well, because uh, as someone who is um, a Persian background, or uh, who, who's, Farsi is my first language, uh, even though I wasn't educated in Farsi, um, but, Learning about the Kurdish literary tradition and also Kurdish resistance was uh, enormously enlightening for me. Uh, with, I, should, I should mention with the with the book I received, uh, uh, Behu sent bits and pieces of um, um, chapters, sometimes different parts of different chapters, to Munis Mansubi here in Sydney, who uh, who's another translator for Behu's, and she um, arranged these bits and pieces into chapters uh, based on Behu's instructions. Uh, she then sent me the PDF files. So when I received the PDF, it was basically one long text message. Mm. So there were no paragraph breaks. And it was all, I guess, in a kind of 
um, prose um, style, uh, or at least presented as it w- uh, as a kind of prose text. Uh, so when it came to translating, this gave me uh, enormous opportunities. It gave me a, um, um, a lot of ideas, a lot of opportunity to experiment. And when I talked to Beth, it was about the sort of ideas that I had for how to separate paragraphs and and, uh, and present the work and structure the work. He, uh, I mean, we, we had fantastic conversations around that, and we both um, saw things in, in very similar ways. So there were certain parts of the of the text that I found were extremely poetic, and in order to convey that in uh, in English, I thought, what better way to translate it than to translate it as poetry mm-hmm. rather than as prose? So uh, that that influenced the way that we. Um, um, structured it or the format, I guess, for the for the text, and um, and also you know separating um, sentences. So Farsi has really long sentences with the subject at the beginning and the verb at the end, and then you have all of these different kinds of clauses, descriptive clauses in between, and you know that would be really awkward to translate into English and maintain the same sentence structure. But splitting up the sentences not only gave me the opportunity to, I guess, um, uh, foreground something like evocation. Uh, and also the kind of symbolism and the kind of um, literary techniques he uses, such as paradox and juxtaposition, um, personification, and, and other things. Uh, it also gave me the opportunity to really uh, uh, convey and really express that literary quality to his work. Mm. Uh, and I should also mention that this was a, a, an enormous learning curve for me because uh, I, I noticed there was so much in his uh, symbolism and his literary and cultural references that I wasn't familiar with. And I soon realized after doing some research that so much of this was related to um, his indigenous Kurdish identity. So, you know, the symbols such as um, the, the chestnuts, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are some that are, you know, uh, very minor in the text, but for me were very significant, like, um, you know, describing some people as having a bald head. You know, this, these sorts of things are part of the mythology or the folklore of, of Kurdish peoples. Uh, and uh, and I think you know once people start to uh, review the book or analyze the book from uh, different perspectives, particularly academic or literary perspectives, uh, these sorts of things will start uh, coming out and um, become topics of deeper discussion. Yeah, I um, I was fascinated by it, and I I could see these the, these motifs emerging, and I could see these things at work, but I I just I simply didn't have the frame of reference, and it is something that I'm looking forward to. Um, Doing a show like Final Draft, reading for reading for as much as I enjoyed this, I was reading it to, for this conversation to share this book. I, I'm looking forward to having finding some time to read this again and try and understand it deeper. I was actually I was I was curious because I noticed uh, things like refrain repeated refrains and um, motifs around individual characters that were um, that would re- recur, uh, and it struck me that. Uh, my understanding, my limited understanding of oral traditions use some of these techniques as part of, uh, as memory devices, but then also oh, to evoke yeah. story. Do you, do you feel like maybe the, the difficulties and the limitations in technology, well, actually, Barus did wonderfully with technology, but he, as I said, he didn't have that infrastructure of writing around him. Do you, do you think it's possible that these were devices that he was using or do these these things that i'm noticing come more from the literary tradition that Baruz comes from uh possibly both and also um i think it's uh deeply connected with the translation process in our mm. own personal dialogue uh, Beruz and, uh, mm. and me um 
discussing and analyzing how the text should be translated because there are parts that I've translated and this kind of repetitiveness and um, and this, uh, I guess, uh, influence from a, an oral tradition uh, is, is part of Betrus's own writing. Mm. But then when it came to translating, there were certain mm, parts of the book, actually many parts of the book, where uh, because I had to split up the sentences, these really long, elaborate sentences, mm. um, in order to make sense and make connections between the consecutive yeah. sentences that I'd created, constructed as a result of one long sentence, mm. it meant that I had to repeat either the, the subject, yeah. the verb, or a particular kind of adjective or, or um, adverb or, or a phrase. So some of the repetitiveness comes from Bethes' own writing and some of it comes from the, um, I guess, the interpretation that was involved in translating. Of course. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a really interesting one. That was something that I found. Um, the, the poetry and the rhythm uh, is actually in his writing sometimes, mm. but when it came to translating, in order to maintain that, in order to uh, conserve that, um, I needed to use this technique uh, in English. So it's, uh, yeah, that's... Yeah. That's a really fascinating tool, and I, I don't know if it's been used before, but uh, for me it worked really well in terms of translation, and Betrus really um, uh, really liked it as well. Oh, wow. Well, my full respect and, and, and awe at the, the work you've done there, I, just, I was so fascinated by what you had done. So thank you for those comments, because you've helped me understand so much of what I was reading. That's, that's really oh, great, yeah. Thank you for your feedback. I'm really glad that you glad that you appreciate that, and um, glad to hear your 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 thoughts on it. Um, and I hope this becomes a topic of further discussion in different circles. That is it for my uh, my special bonus edition of the Great Conversations podcast, featuring Dr. Omid Tafijian discussing No Friend But the Mountains from Beruz Bashani. My full conversation with Beruz is up on the podcast right now, so you can check that out. If you want, you can just go straight to it. Beruz Bashani's book, No Friend But the Mountains, is out now from Pan Macmillan. It's an incredibly important story that deserves wide attention. Now, Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, you can hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and that means that you're going to get an episode every week, including bonuses like this when they drop, and it's going to be delivered straight to your phone. It's also a great way to share and help get these stories out there. Another great way to share and get these stories is to give us a rating. That does help people find us and help find great things in the world of Australian literature. To keep up with more on books, writing, and literary culture, you might also want to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I am back on Monday with another great conversation from Final Draft. See you then.